the angelic voice of Brenda Lee kicking things off for us on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I feel like Too Many Rivers, that's like the theme for 2020. Everywhere you look, something else bad is happening, right? Uh, And that's true. I mean, we've been in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century. Nobody knows how to deal with it. Uh, Those who think they do want to criticize the way other people have handled it. But the fact is, it's unprecedented in our lifetimes. And if you listen to the news or the media, all they do is talk about how much we hate each other and how there's too many rivers between us. But I don't believe that to be true. Actually, I know it's not. When I go to the grocery store, I still smile at people. And guess what? Even from behind a mask, they smile back. Same at the gas station. Same at the gym. And it doesn't matter what color they are. So I just, I know it's not true. And if they would stop feeding us that BS, Americans in America would greatly benefit. Because I just, I don't see it. I play soccer with with Hispanics, blacks, whites, Asians. And we're all on the same team. And I think Americans are all on the same team still. Despite what we've seen here in 2020. So, uh, thank you guys for being here. I do appreciate it. Got an interesting show lined up for you today. So, with that being said, you know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos that Granddaddy passed down years ago. Maybe you spike it with some of Granddaddy's uh, cough syrup. Maybe not. Whatever strikes your fancy. But we are ready to rock and roll. And today, we've only got one guest. He's got a lot to say. He's been around the block, uh, both hunting domestically and certainly internationally, uh, being featured in the documentary film Trophy, which I'm sure many of you guys have seen. Um, Philip Glass will be here. He was the the hunter who shot the elephant in that documentary and was one of the uh, the main characters that the the film crew followed around on multiple safaris Uh, so philip will be here we're going to talk about a lot of things Uh, one that really comes to mind is his leopard hunt which was one of i think it was like his third or fourth time before he finally was able to take a big tom Uh, and in the process his ph got mauled by the leopard (laughs) think about that what a a hairy situation could have easily been Philip, but a story for sure that I'm interested in hearing to see how that all played out among other things with Philip, uh, who, like I said, has traveled the world pursuing big game and is nowhere near done yet. So I think uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation. I don't know where all it's going to lead us, but I'm certainly excited about it. And uh, Leopard, if you, if you said cable, what is the one thing that you're, at the top of your bucket list, if money's no object. Well, like in North America, it would be a bighorn sheep. Anywhere else in the world, it would be a leopard. I, I really want to do a leopard hunt. I love hunting predators. And man, I respect them. I think uh, predators are, they're my favorite animals. And and maybe it's because we, we share so much in common, right? I'm a predator too. Uh, I like to, uh, to eat what I kill. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think leopards are just... So powerful, yet graceful at the same time. 
So in that vein, uh, nothing like me because uh, my sweet wife would say that I've got two left feet, can't dance a lick. But uh, I digress, and I'm certainly looking forward to uh, visiting with Philip on today's broadcast. Well, let's do this. Let's do a quick giveaway. I've got, what do we have today? Oh, yeah. I've got a First Light Cypher Lone Star Outdoors Show cap, and we'll throw in a can of Lone Star Outdoors Show Pyro Putty, the uh, fire starter that I use in the backcountry. Or at the Dooley's, especially if it's raining. I mean, you set this thing on a log, even if it's damp, and it's going to catch fire. Uh, we'll throw in a sticker as well. So just email the word, let's say leopard, since we're going to be talking a lot about that uh, beautiful big cat, the one that I think they say you get like 100 stitches for every second a cat's on you, a leopard anyway. Isn't that exciting? I wonder how many stitches Phillips PH had to get. I'm sure he'll tell us. Here in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, just uh, email the word leopard to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com and we'll get you entered into this week's giveaway. Coming up next, we're talking dangerous game with passionate big game hunter and conservationist Philip Glass on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. The evolution of thermal technology is something that keeps getting better and better and becomes more cost-effective for the consumer. And the new Pulsar Helion 2.0 set the gold standard when it comes to thermal monoculars. It's what I've taken everywhere from the backcountry to just walking into a tree stand so that you don't blow out that wary old doe. It's going to give you up to that trophy buck, right? Uh, but it's the, uh, the Helion 2.0. It's got the incredible color palette options, user-friendly interface, internal recording, and get this, you'll save 20% off any Pulsar thermal or night vision monocular or binos when you use my promo code Lone Star underscore PL. That's Lone Star underscore PL when you check out at PulsarNV.com. Hey guys, Cable here for QuietCat, the leader in e-bikes made specifically for overlanding, hunting, fishing, and remote access to the great outdoors. QuietCat provides outdoor enthusiasts a means of portable, low-impact transportation while providing you with the most reliable product on the market. I own a QuietCat, and it has surpassed all my expectations. It's an amazing machine that stealthily gets me wherever the hunting or fishing adventure takes me. Based out of Eagle, Colorado, QuietCat is able to put all of their products to the test, making sure your e-bike is built to last. Visit QuietCat.com or call 970-328-2399 for more info. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Been lost for a long time Kept on searching for something I never could find Come along and do it all right. 
There's a little folk soul revival bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer as well. Uh, we are about to get into, well, I, I don't know where we're going to start, to be frank, but Philip Glass is a world traveler and big game hunter. He's got some tales from the bush to share, including, uh, as I alluded to in the opening segment, a leopard hunting adventure that really didn't go so well for the leopard or for his pH, to be frank. <laughs> I think Philip's the only one that came away unscathed with a nice uh, leopard to show for it. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're going to get into all of that good stuff here momentarily first. However, this segment brought to you by First Light's brand new camo pattern. If you haven't seen the Spectre, you need to check it out. Um, I think it's really got an emphasis for the hardwoods and the whitetail hunter, uh, but I'm sure it will be effective anywhere. Uh, just I just got a box of, of demo stuff, and uh, yeah, really, really like it. You should go over to firstlight.com to take a look for yourself. It's the Spectre, and it's the latest and greatest from First Light. Uh, all right, well, let's go ahead and bring him on right now. Joining us from, I believe, somewhere out in West Texas, where he is a sheep rancher by trade, it is my pleasure to welcome Philip Glass to the show. Cable, it's great to be on, and I so appreciate your podcast, especially in a year like this when it seems like there's not so many things to do. But boy, listening to to you visit and, and talk about hunting with your kids and things and interviewing interesting people, uh, it's just been a reprieve from uh, all that's been uh thrown at us this year. So I appreciate your show, appreciate being on and hope to uh, share some stories with folks. Hey, absolutely. It is my pleasure. And, and speaking of interesting folks, I think you fall into that category. And we'd actually been um, in email correspondence a little bit, and I had not put two and two together that you actually appeared on the, uh, the feature film uh, Trophy. Maybe it's a documentary. I don't know. I did have the, the directors. Uh, it's a couple. Uh, on when that was released and they're not hunters so it was very interesting to see them tell that story through a, a lens of, of basically people that didn't really have any background in hunting and we'll talk a little bit about that but about you specifically when did the Africa bug first bite you? You know it's it's really interesting I was I was really young just about a year out of college and I was uh, guiding hunts with Greg Simons and he was going to go to Africa with a group and asked me to go. And I said, sure, where do I sign up? I love, I'd love to go to Africa. And that was 1997. And a lot of things changed for me that year. Number one, I obviously fell in love with Africa and the wildlife and the hunting. Um, but I also uh, was in an area where they raise a lot of dorper sheep, uh, which is a meat sheep from Africa that was imported into the U.S. So another direction in my life uh, began at that point and started raising these sheep that at the time were a novelty and now are the number one breed in Texas. So uh, that year and uh, going to South Africa changed a lot of things for me, but um, <clears throat> certainly um, I was like a lot of folks and you think, oh, this is a one time, once in a lifetime trip. And boy, that couldn't have been further from the truth. <laughs> I absolutely fell in love with Africa so much so that it's been difficult for me to even uh, go a different direction hunting, which I have been fortunate to hunt many other places, but um, my heart's in Africa and I've been to, I guess, four different countries hunting there now. And 
absolutely love it. Love the chance to see the people and the culture and enjoy the food and the camaraderie there as much as I do the hunting. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you've been quite a few times, obviously. Um, my, I've been the last three years. Um, the fourth year was canceled because of COVID. That got pushed to February. Uh, and then I'm going to go twice this year because I take a group of, of folks every year. And, uh, and now we still have summer 2021 coming. So much to my wife's uh, dismay, we, we will be going twice in, in 2021, <laughs> uh, which I'm excited about. I, I do want to point out, and it's the same for me, and I figured um, that it probably was the same for you, but South Africa is like the gateway drug. Um, it's the place that most people go on their first hunts. And, and I'm, I mean, I haven't been anywhere else. I'll be going, like I said, I'll have completed five trips to South Africa by the end of 2021. Um, but I think that's typically the place when, when people start out their Africa obsession, it's, it's usually South Africa. That's right. And South Africa has so much variety and so much history, history there that, uh, I think it is a great place for a first safari and, and, I have kind of uh, shifted gears a little bit recently and have also started putting groups together to take to specifically take people on their first safari because I, I love nothing more than sharing my passion with uh, about Africa and all that's there with new people and, and seeing those wide eyed folks the first time they step off the plane into a new place. But South Africa has so much variety and uh, and and just such a hunting culture there that it's it's certainly an, the ideal place, I think, for a first safari. And I think they've done a very good job of, of taking what we've done in North America as far as, cons- you know, sustainable use hunting conservation model uh, and applying it to their own, um, you know, their own country there in South Africa. They've, they really have done a great job. Populations have, have never been higher, of, you know, animals like uh, giraffe and God forbid they add giraffe to the import list. <laughs> Because then you're going to see a bunch of giraffes get shot, just like we saw with the uh, scimitar, horned oryx, dama gazelle, right. and uh, what was it? The addicts. The, uh, the addicts. Amigos. Yeah. 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 So, I raise, I raise addicts, so I'm, I'm familiar with all of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what, what happens when an animal loses its value? Uh, you don't want to pay to keep something like that on the property, whether it's five thousand acres or fifty thousand acres. It just doesn't. It's not good business. So. Um, when they implement these bans, they, they just fail to realize the big loser is the wildlife. Well, and Cable, a good example of that is, is just what we're talking about in that South Africa. And, you know, you go back to the 1950s when it was a big cattle and sheep country, they estimate there was about a th- one million head of game animals. And then over the years with, uh, you know, conservation and hunter's dollars being applied, uh, they say now there's 26 million head of game in South Africa alone. And so going from 1 million to 26 million and converting uh, ranches from strictly cattle and sheep where game was a liability, land was worth more money if it had no game on it. Because if you bought a ranch with game on it, you had to go shoot them all so you'd have room for your cattle and sheep because they didn't have value. So adding value to animals is what we do as conservation hunters. And we have great examples, as you mentioned, here in North America, as well in South Africa, with just a dramatic example of how things have changed over the last 50 years. Yeah. And I do want to put this out there too, though. Um, I don't want people to think that South Africa is all high fences, um, but there are a lot of high fences, but these preserves are, I mean, the one that I've spent the most time in is 30,000 acres. 
These animals don't know there's a fence there. Hell, I don't know there's a fence there unless I'm driving through the front gate. You never see it. Uh, but I was doing the math. I think I've taken 22, 23 animals in South Africa over three trips. And only seven of those have actually even been behind uh, that 30,000 acre preserve. So mm -hmm. the rest have all been free range, which I think is, point, is important to point out that there is plenty of uh, free range opportunity. Hell, I've taken kudu and uh, warthog and um, what else? Gemsbuck, um, all sorts of stuff uh, on the open range there. And, most, and I'll tell you what, a lot of it's that sheep country you're talking about. Uh, they'll, a bunch of landowners get together and they'll form like a um, partnership and they'll have strict quotas. And, you know, they'll, instead of having 20,000 acres, one, one landowner, you've got 200,000 all under the same management umbrella. And the wildlife certainly benefits from that mindset. That's exactly right. And I hunted a place like that in, in Namibia where it was three or 400,000 acres because it was a conservancy that was put together amongst private landowners. But you know, these places are in the tens of thousands of acres. So one of the places that I'm hunting next year, 75,000 contiguous acres. Uh -huh. um, I don't know that you can even hardly call that a, a game fenced range. I mean, it's got a fence around it, but it's wild Africa in the middle there. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just a, it's just a perception thing. I think some people think high fence and they think some small place, but in Africa, what they've done is what we're talking about with the conservation side of this is they have recreated wild Africa. You've got 30, 40, 50, 60,000 acres. Some of those places, a hundred um, where they have recreated wild Africa. It's no longer just a cattle and sheep ranch. It is what was there hundreds of years ago, and it is amazing to see, and it's amazing for us to be able to share the fact that hunters get credit for that. Yeah, I believe the valley that, um, on that conservancy I was hunting uh, on the open range there, I, I was looking out from this mountaintop. We were actually hunting kudu during the rut, and I asked Carl, um, my PH from John X Safaris, and I said, when was the last time a, a lion roamed this valley on the open range and he, he his re response was in the 1950s but through um conservation we now have lions on who knows how many ranches and and i think that's a great thing um now he did say he no longer messes with them because they eat all the rest of the game and he he got tired of dealing with the headache and the importation <laughs> ban and stuff but uh certainly um i mean man it's a it's a great thing to see and and I'll throw this at you. I've got a, a Bontabuck that I shot, so, oh gosh, three years ago maybe. Uh, it's a great conservation story um, through land, land and landowners and, and the ranching community coming together and saying, we need, to, we need to save this species from extinction. I think it's proximity to uh, Cape Town. It was hunted for, for basically for protein, almost to extinction uh, in that same time period around the 1950s and 60s and uh, what a conservation success story. And there, where I shot mine was free range. Oh, just Bontabuck yeah. now roaming those plains once again. Uh, and stupidly, though, U.S. Fish and Wildlife won't let me yeah. bring it back over. <laughs> you can't get it back. And, and that's what blows my mind. And the Bontabuck, uh, them denying those permits is one of the most ignorant things I've ever heard of, although we hear a lot of ignorant things out of the government. You know, when I was over there in 1997, uh, you know, they were proud of this little herd of Bontabuck that they were building. Right. Um, and a lot of people were at the time. And at that time, it was still, they, they were still, you know, just getting the numbers kind of going from, from, as you mentioned, just being just nearly extinct. Yeah. And now there's plenty of them. 
And yet, why in the world Fish and Wildlife would hold up a permit from an animal that's so plentiful, it's not rare, not endangered, yeah. and that's only due to hunter's dollars. But um, there's so many things like that that don't, don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. No, uh, doesn't make sense at all. They should allow those permits, allow people to bring them in so that we can continue to get hunter's dollars in there. I'll, I'll tell you a real quick example of a similar thing. You know, you've got Bontabach and Blessbach that are similar. Uh, one you can import, one that you can't right now. Same thing in Namibia with the black-faced impala. There's nobody that really wants black-faced impala on their property because they can't, uh, American hunters can't hunt them and take them home. Mm. Um, so they just stock common impala. So continue to hurt the, the population that we'd all love to build of such a unique, incredible animal, but we're blocked from importing them. Since we're blocked from importing them, the population is stagnant. Yeah. They would change that, the population would go up. We've got the... Um, the history and the statistics to prove these things and why we continue to have these hurdles in government uh, is beyond me. And it's amazing because the party that, you know, implements these regulations a lot of the time, most 99.9% of the time, uh, they call themselves the party of science, but yet they're ruling with emotion when it comes to wildlife management. It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, Philip, I want to get into your role in the documentary trophy because while i thought it was well done there are certainly a couple things i took issue with one that just stands out to me uh like a black eye for the hunting community i want to get into that next uh, so appreciate you sticking around that segment brought to you by pulsars helion 2.0 it's the latest and greatest thermal monocular from pulsar and here's the best part if you want this badass unit for yourself you'll save 20 percent if you use my promo code LoneStar underscore PL when you check out at PulsarNV.com. We'll be right back with more from big game hunter Philip Glass on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. In a moment of weakness, I stumbled and I made my bed. guys cable here for coon stopper if you're tired of losing corn or protein to those pesky raccoons well here's your solution if you're running a traditional feeder that has you know those long legs that coons like to climb up rob you blind well you just attach the coon stopper to each leg it's so easy i just put one on a 300 pound all seasons feeder and (laughs) the results speak for themselves coons don't like it they basically attempt one time realize that it hurts and they're done Throw in the towel, just like that. It's the Coon Stopper, and you can find it at alamooutdoorworld.com. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at threecurl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. Texas Premium Power Sports is one of the largest pre-owned dealers in Texas. They specialize in sales of pre-owned ATVs and UTVs, many of which come fully accessorized. They also have a full service and repair center for most major brands and offer financing with a 500 credit score or better. 
They'll even finance parts and accessories such as high racks, roofs, and wheel and tire combos. Visit TexasPremiumPowerSports.com or check them out on Instagram at Texas underscore premium underscore power sports. That's TexasPremiumPowerSports.com. There's a place for you And children laugh, the sun is shining And everybody smiles When you walk in the room So come on, never Other side of Lonesome, one of my favorites there From Flatland Calvary, the pride of West Texas And ironically, the last concert that the missus and I went to before COVID hit and the world lost its mind. Yeah, that was uh, Valentine's Day 2020. Took her up to New York City, the Big Apple, and Flatland, and William Clark Green were playing a show up there. Surprised her. My brother and uh, sister-in-law went as well. Hell of a good time, and probably the only way you'd get me to go to New York these days, to be frank. I'm Cable Smith, by the way. Thank you for tuning in to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by the brand new Lone Star Beer, Das Beer. It is a peach-flavored German Kolsch. If you like Kolsches, you got to try it. It's as simple as that. Absolutely love it. Pairs well with, well, any wild game sausage. That's what I'm usually chowing down on with a Das Beer or two or maybe even three. Uh, but, yeah, check it out. Das Beer from Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Well, let's pick it back up with... Big game hunter, conservationist, and storyteller, Philip Glass. And Philip, I want to talk about Trophy, the uh, documentary right now, one that you had the chance to be a part of. And we actually had, um, I spoke with the the directors, a husband and wife out of New York City, back when the film was released. It's been a few years. Can't remember their their names, to be frank. Doesn't really matter. But they're not hunters, and so I think they set out, actually they even will admit that they set out originally to paint trophy hunting in a negative light. But throughout the course of interactions with folks like yourself, um, the film took a different turn. So I guess, first of all, how did you even get involved with Trophy, the film? So uh, the filmmakers you mentioned, Shoal and Christina, Mm -hmm. um, they're New York City filmmakers. And they had embarked on this uh, trophy film project, which was a documentary. Um, And they had portions of the story kind of lined up. They had, when they met me, they had John Hume, the rhino breeder. They had most of his story in the can, so to speak. They had a lot of that lined out. They had some of the other side stories from the antis uh, already um, mapped out and a lot of it uh, already in the can. Uh, What they didn't have is a hunter, that fit, uh, fit the role or told a real story. They had filmed several hunters, been to Africa with some, and it hadn't worked. Um, it just so happens that I was embarking on, on you know, the big five and had some hunts, several hunts lined up, and they were at SCI uh, filming uh, some footage from the floor just to get part of the storyline of hunting and conservation and, and how big this industry is to kind of illustrate that. And they ran into some people I was hunting with and began a conversation. And they said, uh, you, you've, you've got to meet Philip. And uh, he's very outspoken about hunting and conservation. He might very well be the person that you're looking for. And so um, 
uh, after SCI, they asked me if we could possibly have a film crew with us in the Caprivi Strip in Namibia on a buffalo and elephant hunt. And I, you know, ignorantly uh, said yes, <laughs> not knowing that it was going to change my life. But, you know, I'm in a position where I'm, I'm self-employed. I'm a rancher. Um, I'm pretty outspoken. I don't mind sharing what I do. I'm straight up honest about everything I do. And if somebody wants to follow me with a camera, um, that's fine. If they want to try to make me look bad with a the camera, then that's on them. But all I can do is be myself and be honest. So we met, we never met each other until we, we got on a domestic flight in Namibia flying to Katima. And uh, we kind of hit it off. Um, sh I shared some childhood hunting stories with them around the campfire, as you know, we all like to do. And yeah. Uh, specifically let them get to know me and where I came from as a hunter. So I hunted as a child by myself a lot and honed my skills like a lot of us do. Um, you know, started, everybody asked me when I started hunting. I said, I don't know. I, I'm born hunting, I guess. Yeah. So we kind of hit it off, became uh, friends and, um, and just got some interesting time together there. And the documentary trophy was the most interesting organic um, story that could have ever been, it could not have been written, I don't think. Um, the things that happened from that point going forward were absolutely uh, shocking. So we, uh, we did a cull elephant hunt in Namibia. We did a buffalo hunt, which was incredible. I took a buffalo out of a herd of 500 and just hearing the buffalo run away after, after that is something I will never forget as long as I live. Some of those hunting scenarios that you know live in our heart and mind forever that 500 head of buffalo running away after I took that, <clears throat> took that one good bull is something I'll never forget. Um, but we kind of hit it off. And so um, I told them we had a lion hunt lined up for April. They were welcome to come to Texas, hunt with me, with my kids uh, during, uh, you know, say December timeframe. And so they said, well, we'll think about it. And so they, they chose to come. They hunted with me and my children at the ranch in December. They were here actually on my birthday, December 21st. And what do you know, with the cameras rolling, Fish and Wildlife puts the lion on the threatened list. And, you know, I, I literally get the email while the cameras are rolling on me, uh, taking just some shots of, of me and my family <clears throat> here at the ranch. And here we've got a decision to make. Now we've got to decide, are we going to Zimbabwe in April on this really big uh, hunt, <laughs> very expensive, long in the planning, uh, you know, the whole thing. Anytime you're trying to organize one of these kind of hunts, there's so much that goes into it. And I had decided that very quickly um, that, you know, I'm a hunter at heart and, you know, fish and wildlife be damned. I'm going to go, I'm going to go on this safari. This is something I've wanted to do my whole life. And so I told him that said, y'all are welcome to go with me, but here's the deal. You know, we may not be able to import this line. So the drama of all of that played into Trophy the film and uh, made for an incredibly interesting storyline because we did go to Zimbabwe. We did get a, a great lion on a difficult hunt in a difficult place. And uh, I was able to import that later, thankfully. President, right. Once President Trump got in office, I was able to import that lion. But we formed a, a friendship unlikely friendship a texas rancher and two new york city filmmakers um and i can honestly say that my my role in trophy changed the direction of the film because they just didn't have something to glue together the pieces that they had begun with there was nothing there and the the, the things um that they were able to to do with me those organic things that just happened along the way 
uh, were were really amazing. Um, so and you, do not, you do not regret being a part of the project. Absolutely not, because what it did, Cables, it gave me a voice, this West Texas rancher who lives out here in the country with his family and keeps to himself in some respects, it gave me a voice for conservation. I was able to go out with these filmmakers, screen this film in New York and LA and Austin in front of 400 or so um, city folks, liberal folks, and you know maybe vegan folks in some cases. And it gave me a voice to be able to explain myself and the personalization of me in the film gave me that little uh, uh, opening of the door with those people to be able to have a decent conversation with people that probably would just yell at you otherwise if you said you'd mm -hmm. shot a lion and an elephant, you know. And so I was able to truly take my message and my story and make an impact with those people. And so many people's minds were changed or at least open to trophy hunting and sustainable utilization and the things that we all stand for that I don't regret it at all. And, you know, kind of the, the crescendo of all of this, as far as me speaking to the public, was uh, a debate that I did on CNN. You know, CNN bought the broadcast rights. Everybody thinks CNN uh, funded the film. That's not true. CNN bought the broadcast rights to the film after it was completed. Mm -hmm. And they wanted me in New York City um, to do some interviews uh, to promote the film before it rolled out on CNN on a Sunday night, which they've been doing with, with documentaries for years. Um, and so I got the chance to go on CNN in front of millions of people and debate the CEO of Born Free USA, which is one of the top animal rights organizations sure. in the world, yeah. and be able to really, um, really give him um, a chance to make a real fool of himself because that's, that's what happened. I absolutely destroyed this guy. That's and what I did, <laughs> and what I did was I had a, I had a, a formula that anyone can use. And that is, um, that is in contrast to what we've done in the past when we've debated the antis, we've strictly used dry cold statistics and those are good. We talked about that earlier in South Africa, 1 million to 26 million. That's how the numbers of animals have improved. You know, white-tailed deer, there was half a million 100 years ago. Now we kill half a million in Texas. We can use those statistics, but those only go so far, especially when you're dealing with an emotional person on the other side. You've got to make it personal. So what I did is I combined my personal story with our positive statistics on hunting and conservation, and then I couldn't be beat because I use my own personal story and my own personal experience. And the reason I want to share that is to not toot my own horn is to encourage other people to go out there and tell their story about hunting and conservation. And that is how we win the debate. And that is how we make progress. Yeah, absolutely. As far as trophy is concerned, I want to give you my take on it. I thought it was very, obviously very well done. Uh, the only really thing that stuck out to me that was like, man, that didn't make us look very good and it had nothing to do with you, was the crocodile hunt. And then that's not how most things play out in the hunting community anywhere. That's, the, that's like, you know, the guy who shoots a black bear in a 50-acre pen. It's not hunting. They drop these crocodiles off, basically, I, I don't know what, how big they were, but just old, giant male crocodiles. And they bring a hunter in. And he shoots him in, the, in, in what amounts to just a little pond that they dropped him off in. You couldn't miss the damn thing. He's just, uh, and then the guy's like getting all excited and then smokes a cigarette and drinks a beer. Like he really did something. And I think that moment in that film was the one place where it was like, okay, I, it's fair. I mean, that actually happened, but that was not 
what no, it was, it was, was about. It, it was uh, so shocking to see that, you know, I flew up, my wife and I flew up to New York City to see a, a private screening of the film when they first got it all put together. <clears throat> and of course, when I saw that scene, I was just beside myself and I told them that I didn't like it and it, it wasn't, uh, wasn't good on any level. And they said, well, it happens and it's true. And this is a documentary. We're not here to shine a light on any one person or any one uh, position. And I had to agree with them. It, it, there are bad hunters out there. You know, that guy is, is, uh, <laughs> is the worst hunter ever. First of all, he's in a put and take situation that most of us wouldn't ever choose to be in. He's drinking. That, that pond was the size. I mean, like it, it was small. It was, terrible. it was, it was really small. And here, here he is. He doesn't have enough bullets. He can't shoot straight. He's drinking beer. He's cussing. He's just the, and he knows the cameras are rolling and here he's the worst hunter yeah. Uh, you could ever imagine on so many levels. And I'm like, guys, this is terrible. But I guess what we take from that is there are people like that and we need to continue to, uh, to uphold the, the highest standards, which is what, you know, we all try to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's do this. Let's knock out a quick commercial break. I want to come back and talk more about the big five, specifically the animal that's number one on my bucket list. I think you've got an interesting story regarding uh, leopard hunt. Uh, so are you cool to stick around? Sure. Sounds good, Cable. All right. And that segment was brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. You can find their entire lineup of American-made and Texas-owned feeders and blinds right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. Coming up next, it's a big cat story that'll make the hair on your arm stand up right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Dallas Off-Road is North Texas' trusted 4x4 shop, specializing in lifts, wheels, tires, exterior upgrades, and gears and drivetrains. I recently took my factory Z71 Silverado into Dallas Off-Road, and they handed me back a lifted beast of a truck that will get me around the deer lease or just as easily tackle a perilous mountain road on my way to a backcountry elk hunt. Dallas Off-Road owner Jeff Swope is an avid hunter and gun enthusiast, so you'll have a lot to discuss when you swing by the shop or give them a call. Visit DallasOffRoad.com for all your truck or Jeep customization needs. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com today. I'm gonna put my troubles in a frying pan With the speckled belly goose in a mallard hand Gonna eat my fill, drink my toe Then gypsy dance with the Cajun moan Gypsy dance with the Cajun moan Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Man, great tune there from William Clark Green. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer, longtime presenting sponsor. Um, we've still got big game hunter extraordinaire Philip Glass on the line. And we're going to talk some big cats here momentarily. 
But before we do so, this segment of the presentation brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. When you do take that bucket list animal, whether that's a leopard or a speckled trout or anything in between, you know, white-tailed deer, black bear, you name it. But if you want to put it on the wall, you need to give Rustic Reminders a call. They've got two locations, one in San Antonio, one in Marion, Texas. That's just outside of New Braunfels. And I've been using Josh and Becky Gunther for all of my trophy work for, gosh, a dozen years. I don't even know. It's been forever. They do amazing work. They answer the phone when you call. And they offer fast turnaround time relative to uh, the taxidermy world. So for more info, go to gr8mounts.com. Uh, we'll pick it back up here with Philip, who was nice enough to stick around. Certainly appreciate you doing so. Absolutely. Okay, we're glad to be back. Yes, sir. And like I alluded to earlier, you know, if there's one thing that I could hunt, and, and say money's no object, it would be a leopard. And it's the mystique. It's the power. I mean, you look at these cats dragging animals up into a tree 20 feet high that weighs as much as they do. And then the stealth and the, the grace, you know, it's just... Uh, it's the complete package. Plus, the spots is just freaking cool, just that the pelts on a leopard. But you read these books, uh, Capsticks, Death in the Tall Grass, or Horn of the Hunter, or um, like Jim Corbett's Omnibus, the uh, the famous big cat hunter that the Indian government paid to track down the, uh, the man-eating tigers and leopards of the early uh, 20th century. I mean, all of that adds to the mystique for me. So getting back to your experience, though, uh, how many days do you need to block off for a leopard hunt? Three weeks? Well, uh, most leopard hunts are scheduled for 14 days. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's a, a real-time commitment. You've got to have a lot of bait, so you're going to be planning to hopefully hunt some plains game that you want to hunt, but you're also going to be taking some uh, just impala young males and females and different depending on your area they use different baits in different areas because the cats have different preferences mm -hmm. but uh, impala is obviously a mainstay in most anywhere and so you're gonna there's gonna be a lot involved in planning a leopard hunt obviously like anything with the big five it's very expensive um, and of course you're paying for that bait paying for the chance to be over there but it's funny that you ask how many days does it take to uh, get a leopard or how many days would you typically schedule um, I've probably had uh, <laughs> I don't know, probably one of the most interesting, frustrating, exciting, uh, frightening stories about leopard hunting that you could imagine. And so I was really going to have a leopard hunt as my, just like you, that was kind of going to be my next step. Um, and then I found out about the lion getting put on the, the you know, way ahead of time, years ahead of time, the lion potentially going on the threatened list by Fish and Wildlife. And so I decided I better put the lion up there as a priority. So mm -hmm. my lion hunt was a lion and leopard hunt. I had a 21 day hunt scheduled and we did great on the lion. We got the lion on the fourth day. We could have had it on the third day if, it, if the trail cameras had been working correctly. Um, and then never even got to sit for a leopard. And huh. the crazy part of the story is 9 a.m. on the first day out stalking, looking for a zebra or something to hang for bait, we run across a leopard. And I'm on the sticks at about 80 yards or so with my scope turned up. I can see this animal. I know it's a male. The problem is it's day one. Second problem is it's a $20,000 fine if you shoot a female. Yeah. In hindsight, I could see the head. I should have pulled the trigger and said, oops. Um, but on with the story. <laughs> so 21 days, didn't even get to sit for a leopard. 
Saw one at 9 a.m. first day, 21 days, never even sat, never got one to come to the bait. That was a male, you know, couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, worth, worth sitting for. And so I went home with my tail between my legs after 21 days. And that was rough that, you know, people, some people don't understand how hard hunting is mentally and emotionally at times. And that one was a kick in the pants, 21 so days. You never actually sat, I mean, cause you didn't have anything on trail camera, which, um, you know, that's, that's how you plan these things out. Uh, this reminds me, which we're going to hear more about your story, but I did 18 days in Colorado over three trips to get my dry ground mountain lion. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we had to work for it and it made it so much more rewarding, but as you're going through that process, uh, what a kick in the shorts. Yeah. Is this ever going to happen? So anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, take us to the, the next part of that journey. So I decided that I was just going to try to find a second opportunity. And I booked a late season, October, Northern Namibia leopard hunt. Um, and it was discounted because it was the end of the season. The, Folks were, were pretty good at what they did. I didn't know them, but I said, let's roll the dice and go to northern Namibia. And I get there, and the drought is so bad that animals are dying at the water hole every other day or so, maybe every day in some cases. And I'm like, there's no way we're going to get a predator when there's stuff dying that he can eat at will. Yeah. So we tried a few things. We did find some, some natural kills, um, and we're just one um, – uh, you know, just one opportunity away from getting to sit in the right place. We're always sitting in the wrong place. And, and that one, that cat didn't come in, but the other one did come in. And we were just, just, I mean, just, just such a, uh, just a fraction of an inch away from, so to speak, uh, being in the right place and having a good chance on a leopard. So um, that hunt came and went. So a female came in or an immature male? Well, and in some cases a big male, but he would be on a, a different, uh, you know, three hours away from us at a different location where we had set up uh-huh. um, and and had a, a natural kill. You know, we, we knew in the drought like that, we were going to, if we were going to get a leopard, we needed to find something he had killed the day, uh, that day he killed it. The, the, you know, he killed it the night before and we'd find it that day. And then we could sit that night and he would come back. And we, so we had a plan and it just couldn't, it just didn't come together. We were just at the wrong place every time and yeah. um, it didn't work out. So, I'm back to my original plan before all of this lion hunt and all these other things and trophy, the film and all of that. I'm back to wanting to do what I wanted to do originally was to go to Zimbabwe with a pack of hounds. Right. And I had studied that, talked to some of the top guys in the, in, in that field. Interesting, Cause my next question was going to be, did you ever consider using hounds? You know, I, like a lot of us cable, I, there's nothing like working with good dogs. I don't care on what level it is and what you're doing, whether it's sheep dogs or hunting dogs. I love being around those quality working dogs. And so I'd always wanted to do that. And it just didn't work out. Um, I had learned a lot. I'd asked a lot of questions. I'd learned a lot about it. And, and the key to all of this was speaking to one of the old PHs years ago and him telling me from the very beginning when I asked him, what do I need to know about hunting a leopard with hounds and he says you need to know that when they see you they're coming for you they're coming to kill you it's not like a mountain lion who stays in the tree and uh, you can get around in any position you want take a picture and all of that um, that cat's coming to kill you mm-hmm. and thankfully that was in the back of my mind um, firmly um, or else the rest of the story could have been even worse but we uh, book a hunt in Zimbabwe um, 
find a great place to go and had an awesome plan. The PH hunts elephant. And every time he's on those tracks, he's looking for cat tracks. He's got them mapped out and he knows where a big male is. And all he's got to do is get me in there. And so I get in there and just before I had arrived, the old male that he had been tracking, he knew his habits because of the elephant hunts. He's always tracking hyenas killed this big cat and when a big dominant male is killed as you can imagine the territories get all messed up and changed and then it's just helter skelter and there's no oh, pattern hyenas, hyenas got him hyenas killed him and they've got they had pictures of it um oh. pictures of the aftermath anyway um so i get there and the plan is there's no plan we just got to start over so we've got the houndsmen we've got the dogs we start hanging baits, we shoot some impalas, we go to some villagers and buy some goats, we hang up baits here and there and we go to work and then, um, you know, we, know we, we were just having really hard luck, it was cold. Finally, we get a female, um, we get some, some of the most beautiful trail cam pictures of this female with two big healthy cubs. And I mean, we got loads of pictures. And then her two-year-old, we believe her two-year-old offspring had come in and would eat and, and, you know, she'd shy him, she'd shoo him away, but wouldn't attack him. And so we figured it must be her offspring. So we have these, you know, we have four leopards on bait and we have such a, so many good pictures. So at least we have some encouragement. We're seeing great leopard activity. And then finally, I guess it's the, it's the seventh day. We hadn't put the dogs out yet. We haven't had any, any luck at all. Um, hadn't found a mail track of any sort uh, that was fresh or any th direction that we could go yeah, i mean and, and just so people know if you're not familiar with hound hunting the, the tracks essentially have to be an overnight track you can there are some really cold nosed dogs but if they're going to work a track and you expect to get to the tree uh it needs to be you know an overnight deal so they got to be fresh and i didn't have the best dogs the better dog handler was finishing up a, a hunt and was supposed to join us after a few days well his hunt didn't go well so i've kind of got the second string uh so to speak when it comes to the dog so mm -hmm. we're um we're on day seven it's morning you saw um, what happened to the cowboys last night when they ran out the second string quarterback <laughs> oh, <laughs> it doesn't God. always work out <laughs> <laughs> so you know we uh we find a male had come near the bait and you got to remember we're talking about four leopards on bait for several days so this place stinks like leopard even to to a human we can smell and see the droppings it is a litter box so any cat any other animal is going to smell it from a long ways away he comes in about 30 yards maybe from the bait and then turns around i i i don't believe the the trackers and the ph and i i i'm like ah, it's just got to be the females track what do you mean it didn't come to the bait so i get the head tracker aside and i said are you telling me that a big male came in and turned around and left he said yes he smelled that there's other cats here and he didn't like it and he left hmm. We get the dogs, we get our group together, go down the road 100 yards and the dogs sound off like crazy. We know we're on a fresh track. Yeah. And so we're 8.30 in the morning, we put the dogs out and everything goes good for a while. But this was a hungry cat. He hadn't eaten the bait, obviously. He hadn't eaten anything. Uh, we found where he killed a dove. He was backtracking and we were losing time. We'd keep, we'd go on off trail and then back on the trail, you know, he was just he would, he would hunt a ways and then backtrack. And so we're losing time because we're not making progress to where he is. Mm -hmm. And so we go on and on and, and the trail gets cold and the trackers work their tails off to find a fresh track and put the dogs on it and they'll go again. And about noon, I just figured we were done. We, uh, 
it, it, the track was just so cold. The trackers kept trying to find the track and then put the dog back on it because the dogs were losing the track and they wouldn't stay on the track a hundred yards and then they'd lose it. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, well, it's noon, we're done. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but this, this day is shot. And finally the trackers get a track again, put the dogs on it again. And then things start to heat up. The dogs get a little bit louder. The big mountains are way in the background. So we're like, where did the cats sleep? We're too far away from those big mountains. Well, there were some little hills. And I finally, as the dogs got louder, I told the PH, I said, he's in those little hills. He is not in the big hills where you expect him to be. He's close. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, I was right. And the, you'll never forget that sound if you're ever on a, a hunt like this where the dogs go up the hill. The copies, they call them these little rocky hills and the leopard growls back at them and here the game is on. And uh, that gives me chills even thinking about it. But they, they get on this cat. And to, to tell you a little bit about the area we were in, we're in an, a wilderness area, but there are cattle and, and some cattle herders, usually young boys with their little cur dogs herding cattle. So these cats have smelled people and they've probably been chased by these little dogs and they hate dogs. And so during their life, they've, older animals like that, they've experienced people and they don't like them. And so this cat would not tree. He wouldn't uh, get up in the rock in a defensive position. He would just, he just got on the ground in a flat area, kind of like what we would have here, like a little mesquite flat with some kind of 10 foot tall mesquite type trees, a little bit of brush. And he just sat there and, and fought the dogs. We sprinted about 200 yards to get caught up and um, got in place. And the PH says, uh, there's your cat. Be very careful. He said, you can shoot, be very careful of the dogs. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm knowing all of this and I'm knowing what the old PH had told me years prior. I raised my 375 to aim at this cat, which I thought was going to be a fairly easy shot. And before I can even acquire him in the scope, he comes on at a full charge. And so I'm thinking, I'm, I'm fine. I got plenty of time. I'm going to shoot this cat right now. And I fire and I know I hit him, but there's no reaction at all. And so I try to reload and he just wants um, to murder you. He, he's coming to kill us. He sees <laughs> the dogs are no, the dogs are not the problem. The people are the problem. And he just figured that out. The light bulb just went on in his head. The people are the problem, not the dogs. I need to go. I need to go take care of this problem. Mm -hmm. And so I try to reload and, and I thought I short struck the bolt. And what actually happened is um, some guns, when you work them really hard under a stressful situation, the case won't eject. And so my spent shell didn't eject and I go forward with the bolt, not taking my eyes off the cat and realize I don't have a second shot and he's here. Oh, um, wow. So obviously I just come straight back. Where with the you bolt. At, PH? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, we're standing shoulder to shoulder. PH is right beside me with his 416 and he waits to the last second, just like he's supposed to. And he fires his 416 and immediately he sees in, in a fraction of a second, no reaction. And so he, um, what I believe happened is he kind of got his gun with both hands in a defensive position. And I'm still fairly still trying to get that shell after kicking the shell, bad shell out and the second shell and trying to get what would be the, actually the third shell to go straight in the chamber. Like it's supposed to, I'm fairly still because I'm still trying to just focus on the work in the bolt. Mm -hmm. And when he made a motion, the cat was coming at me. And when he made that motion to kind of move his rifle into a defensive position, the cat jumped on him and we're we're shoulder to shoulder we're at maybe i mean if we're two feet from shoulder to shoulder that's that's a would be the most it would have been uh -huh. so my gun is finally loaded um they hit the ground 
and I see this just a you know all I can see is spots on my right. Flying through the air. You need. Uh, there's a saying, uh, Philip. And you can correct me here, but what is it like a hundred stitches or something for yeah. every second a leopard? For every second. You? For every second. So the so I am I'm a hundred percent ready. The there's a rainbow of spots on my right, and it literally as soon as the cat hits the ground, I fired right behind the shoulder. And uh thankfully I did because the pH is going for his forty five on his hip. The cat's got his left arm in his mouth. And as soon as I shot, the cat didn't ever move again. He was dead, and maybe he was dead in the air. I had uh, shot him in the mouth. I had blown out his lower canine and ripped up his, his brisket very severely, but not, mm -hmm. I was not getting the heart or anything like that. He had somehow hit it in, um, and I still don't know exactly because of the chaos afterwards, but the, the bullet hole is in the head. He hit it in the head too, wow. missing, missing the brain and missing the, early, the first part of the spine there. And um, so both of us hit it in the head couldn't get it stopped, bit his arm, and in, in one second, disabled everything that makes your hand work. Just those, and he only had three teeth, remember? I shot one out, too bad I didn't shoot out an upper canine because it yeah. maybe all been over because I'd have got a better shot on him. But that's what happened. He hit the ground, and of course, as soon as I fired, my mind just is recalling, thinking this scenario out. Did I shoot, did, did I shoot him? Did I shoot his arm? Did I shoot far enough away from his arm? Because I was very intentional on shooting him right behind the shoulder, knowing that, um, far away from his arm, which is in the cat's mouth. Yeah. And he gets it out. Uh, obviously, he gets his arm out of his mouth, and that's the end of that um, as far as the cat. The cat is dead. Dead as a hammer um, right there from my last shot with the 375 Ruger. Um, and so we're trying to assess the situation. There is a fair amount of bleeding. It's just puncture wounds. And a, a couple of lacerations on his uh, shoulder. Um and one good laceration on his shoulder, but mainly the puncture rooms on his forearm, which were, turns out to be um, pretty damaging to the things that make your hand work, makes your grip work. Mm -hmm. We've got dogs, so we've got a backpack full of dog medicine and injectables and sutures of every kind, but we have no uh, first aid kit for people. And <laughs> so we exactly get a... <laughs> the opposite of what happened to me in New Mexico last week. My dog got <laughs> poked pretty severely by a... a a deadfall, you know, a stick that was coming off a deadfall and she was tra chasing a grouse, uh, pick, yeah. picking a retrieve. And I look at her and she's just like got this huge, I mean, baseball size, just gash where you can see muscle and everything else. Of course, I had a first aid kit for me, but not one for her. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> she's fine now. I did have some antibiotics, uh, thank God, and cleaned her up. But anyway, go on. Just maybe. Absolutely. Best thing we can do is get one of the trackers t-shirts and wrap his arm mm -hmm. because at first there was, there was fair amount of blood. It, it looked like vein, not arterial. So it wasn't just pumping out, but it was bleeding um, enough to be a real concern. And obviously after about a minute, um, the pain really set in. It was extremely painful for him. Yeah. So we wrap his arm in a t-shirt and uh, he's sitting there holding it, trying to stop the bleeding and tells me to get the cat and get his head tracker to take my picture. I'm like, well, I'm not really worried about the picture right now. He says, no, stop what you're doing. Get that cat and get a picture. Uh -huh. And so the, with all the chaos going on, there's all kinds of things that happen that shouldn't have. I pick up the cat by myself, which my lower back still hurts to this day. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I get the cat, get the, his head tracker, who is familiar with the iPhone, and get him to take a few pictures of me. So thankfully, we got some pictures. Um, we got a floppy hat that had a string on it and made a, a sling out of it for his arm. And then we, uh, 
uh, get ready for the two hour walk to the vehicle. We are in the middle of nowhere in real wilderness in Zimbabwe with bad elephants, bad cats, obviously, and everything else. So, and so the trackers get a pole cut and get the cat attached to it, get the uh, PHS rifle and they leave us. They left us. Everybody left us. It was just me and the PH who's, I don't know, I think he might could lose consciousness. He's in shock and he's in so much pain. And he gives me his GPS and says, oh, by the way, we're on waypoint number 10 or whatever. I'm like, I'm not familiar with this GPS. I hope we can make it out of here. And by this time, the pain is really set in. And so we start the two hour walk with me trying to follow him. And then he says, oh, by the way, load your gun with solids because these elephants are unpredictable here and really bad. I'm like, what else, what else could go wrong? So right. I've got a satellite phone. I'm asking him who to call. He says, no, don't worry about it. We're fine. So I call my wife, tell her it's time for y'all to be praying for us. We've got an issue here. And so that's what I did. Two hours walking through Thornbush and all kinds of stuff and get to the vehicle and they'd taken his pickup and all that was left was an old, like a 1960s land cruiser of some kind that I have to drive. It's like driving a tractor, you know, no power steering. It's really old and on the wrong side, on the wrong side, shifting, <laughs> shifting gears with your left hand and a clutch that's not so good and, and a bad road and every bump I hit, he's just in pain. He's screaming in pain. So we finally get to where his vehicle is and they get on the, all the trackers are already on the phones with people and we get him something to eat, some ibuprofen and a Coke. And in a matter of 10 minutes, the shock is gone. He's fine. He's in his right mind and he's feeling good. And he says, let's go back to camp. Okay. Camp is an hour in the wrong direction. And Bilawayo is four hours away. So that would make it five, even if we went back to camp. He's got a severe injury here. He says, no, we got to go back to camp because we can't put the leopard and the dogs together. I said, strap the leopard on the hood. I don't care. You've got to go with your head tracker and go to town now. No, let's go to camp. So we go to camp. We get hot water and salt. We clean his arm. I completely bandage his arm where there's proper bandaging back at camp. I completely redress him. His clothes are bloody and shot. Take some more pictures um, and then finally get him in a vehicle and get him headed to town where he can get into surgery. Uh, which winds up being, we shoot the cat at one o'clock or something like that. He gets into surgery about 2 a.m. And um, thankfully I had, I had cash for a, for a gratuity and that sort of thing. And I had to give him all the cash. Cause you know, in, in some places like Zimbabwe, if you don't have cash, you're not getting to see the doctor. Yeah. So we had that part of it sorted out. We got him there, got him to a very good, competent private hospital who did uh, good surgery on him. But yeah, it took him about six months uh, to recover what basically is your grip on your hand. Everything that makes your hand grip was totally damaged. Yeah. Um, we got the cat uh, skinned, spent the night. Uh, his brother-in-law came and stayed with me. And we we're in a tent camp on the Botswana River border. Um, wow. And we, we packed up the tent camp the next day uh, in the morning and then headed back to, uh, to Bilawayo. And um, it was one of those things where I look back at that leopard in Zimbabwe the first time on 9 a.m. on the first day and thinking, I should have asked, not, I, I saw the head. I know it was a male. I shouldn't have asked permission. I should have said, oops, bang. Yeah. <laughs> I shot me. I shot the leopard. I thought you said, that you, <laughs> you know, but I wasn't going to do that. But in hindsight, you're like, well, we were jinxed on this leopard uh, from, by seeing one on the very first day. Yeah. Um, but it's you one know, of those stories that you just don't, don't always really want to tell. It was a, a sleepless night after that. Oh, I'm sure. um, 
but I got a, I got an amazing trophy. I was calm under pressure. I was able to do what I could. I was able to do the best I could do in that situation. If I could have got that second shot off, I, this wouldn't have happened. We'd have been having a party, a leopard party that night. But unfortunately, we had a malfunction that uh, there's nothing I could have done about. Oh, and it could have been you just as easy as him that that, that actually bore the brunt of the attack there. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I appreciate you sharing that story. Going back to the leopard's head um, and, and, you know, reliving this thing and thinking I should have just shot that first one. Um, state wildlife agencies don't want you to – they don't want you to judge off the head, but you certainly can with big cats and, and bears as well a lot of the time. Big old pumpkin head, uh, mm -hmm. you pretty much guarantee you know what you're looking at. So. Well, I'm, you know, I've spent my life raising livestock and exotics. And <clears throat> when you spend, spend your life breeding animals, you do learn masculinity and femininity that is transferable into most any animal. And so there are some clues there, even if you don't have a wealth of experience with that animal that, that can help you to, you know, in my case, to be able to know what's a male and what's a female. I'm not always right, but that foundation of, of raising animals and being around them has given me the chance to get it right more often than not. So yeah. what an experience. And so total, how many days did you invest? So that you, this was your third trip, correct? Third, third trip. I shot that leopard on my 40th day of leopard hunting. My goodness. That is a, a lot of time and a huge financial commitment. Yeah. Well, I think let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and uh, talk a little bit more about your other big five adventures. I don't know what all you have or have not taken, but I'm sure that'll be fascinating as well. That segment brought to you by SCI First for Hunters. If you haven't been following along on their social media outlets, they just hosted the African Wildlife Consultative Forum this past week, virtually from Botswana. Um, like, This is a function where anybody with a vested interest in African wildlife management comes together and discusses ideas and thoughts and management practices. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife takes takes notes and pays close attention to what's being said here as uh, you know country wildlife management agencies and conservation organizations like SCI all have a major influence in the uh, in the forum um, so lots of great stuff coming out they've been putting clips and videos on their social media stuff as far as updates from the dark continent I encourage you to check those out and you can do that by just following along on SCI's uh, social media platforms, SCI, first for hunters. We'll be right back with more tales from the African bush with big game hunter and conservationist Philip Glass on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Like kisses go with back roads, like blue goes with sky, like church goes with Sunday, and picnics with July we go together, like coffee and cold weather. Texas Premium Power Sports is one of the largest pre-owned dealers in Texas. They specialize in sales of pre-owned ATVs and UTVs, many of which come fully accessorized. They also have a full service and repair center for most major brands and offer financing with a 500 credit score or better. They'll even finance parts and accessories such as high racks, roofs, and wheel and tire combos. Visit TexasPremiumPowerSports.com or check them out on Instagram at Texas underscore Premium underscore Power Sports. That's TexasPremiumPowerSports.com. 
With city life seemingly getting crazier by the minute, the thought of moving out to the country is looking more appealing than ever. And Foster Farm and Ranch has been recognized as one of the nation's top ranch brokerages the past two years. They have listings in 22 counties and counting and are truly a statewide entity. Foster represents buyers and sellers from all walks of life. Farmers, ranchers, hunters, doctors, lawyers, investors, and possibly you. You can find them on Facebook, Foster Farm and Ranch, or Instagram, at Foster Ranch Sales. Of course, fosterfarmandranch.com, the website, or call Chad at 830-776-3605. This is Randy Newberg with Federal Premiums Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg. Thanks for listening to the Lone Outdoor TV show. <laughs> Radio show. Yeah, just the Lone Star Outdoor show. Everybody knows when they try to stay, you gotta shoot them down. Beautiful and wonderful as they might seem. Every time, every night, I think I might take one home. I take another look in my scope, but it's just another damn kind. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer. A long-time presenting sponsor, as we are talking uh, African dangerous game hunting with passionate big game hunter and conservationist. Isn't it awesome to be able to say those two things in the same sentence and mean it, though, by the way? Hunters are the biggest conservationists on the planet. That is a fact, as we continue to put our money where our mouth is, collectively, as a group. And that's a great thing. So be proud of that fact. Don't let anyone else tell you that. It's erroneous uh, because without us, this the wildlife landscape would look extremely different because nobody else is stepping up to pay for it. And that goes for all species, not just the ones that we like to put in the freezer or put on the wall. Um, this segment of the show is brought to you by the Vortex Fury range-finding binocular. I've got one perfect for those backcountry hunts or sits in the uh, deer blind, basically... Anytime I'm rifle hunting, I've got the Fury with me because it eliminates the need for, uh, you know, a separate rangefinder and bino. And if you're honest with yourself, um, I mean, who doesn't want to take the least amount of gear into the field as possible? I know I don't. A kind of a minimalist attitude, especially for the backcountry when every ounce counts. Uh, but yeah, check it out. It's the Fury HD rangefinding binocular. You can find it at vortexoptics.com. Vortex, the force of optics. With that being said, uh, let's pick it back up here with Philip Glass, who was nice enough to stick around through the break. And Philip, talking about the big five, um, we recapture your leopard, I mean, harrowing leopard hunting experience that did have a happy ending. I don't know what other species you've taken other than what I saw on uh, on Trophy. Have you, have you taken all of the big five now at this point? I have. I was able to, uh, after being um, obviously really immersed in, in all of the, uh, rhino breeding um, side of things by being in trophy the film I'd learned a lot about that and I had really struggled with what I was going to do um, I really years ago I would have easily said yeah I'm going to go do a green hunt and go do the darting thing I mm-hmm. I use dart guns here at the ranch I've uh, done that by the way you know I've right right and it's it can be a good experience um, they've changed the way it works and it just didn't work for me you're no longer actually handling the drugs yeah. Uh, just shooting a vitamin dart. It's not quite the same experience as it was, you know, years ago. 
And so I struggled with that and I decided that wasn't for me. And knowing what I know about rhinos, I realized that with the poaching uh, problems, there's more and more rhinos that have the horn sawed. And those people that own those privately have very few marketing opportunities for those, especially the bulls. Mm -hmm. Cows obviously hold their value, but sawed horn bulls, you only need so many breeding bulls as we all know. Um, and so there's lots of those available now and there's chances to have a really good quality hunt for something that would be much more reasonably priced than a trophy gold medal full horn rhino. Um, and plus the other side of that is uh, you watch Trophy and John Hume's holding a, a big rhino horn and he says it's worth a quarter of a million dollars on the black market. I'm not yeah. sure that I want something that's worth that much money in my house. Most people yeah. put it in a safe and then have a fiberglass horn on their rhino anyway. So for me, I chose to go on a real hunt for a real rhino that happened to be a solid horn bull in South Africa and two years ago and had a, had a great experience. It was extremely challenging and it was uh, quite incredible. So now I'm fighting with the COVID lockdowns to get everything shipped that's sitting over there still yeah. um, has slowed down all of that process. But yes, I will have my rhino uh, at some point this year and we'll have completed the big five. Wow. Wow. Well, that is a, a life goal completed, no doubt. And I, I do want to tell you though, so I was very conflicted. I had a lot of trepidation about doing the, the green hunt, um, basically the vitamin dart. Right. It was because I, I, number one, didn't know how much of a hunt it would really be. And number two, and I've talked about this on the air, but I think it's worth revisiting. And, and all the things I've been fortunate enough to do in this business, um, that was the one that gave me the most pause. And it was because I, I had to walk this line of, are we exploiting the rhino just to say that, you know, we hunted it? And not me personally, but the hunting community. Or is it really necessary? Is that money going back into anti-poaching? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, and I told my pH that I had these concerns and he kind of walked me through it and said, well, you know, we don't have to do it, but I, I think it's a story worth telling. And, and so we ended up doing it. Um, it was, I mean, it was a hunt. We had to, you know, spend a lot of time walking and glassing, trying to find the, you'd think it'd be easy to find a, <laughs> animal. Right. No, I mean, it, it took us quite a while to find him. And then he said, you know, think about your hogs in Texas. These things have great hearing and great smell. Their eyesight is crap. Right. But he said, once you make the shot, be very still because they will, that's when they're prone to find you. Uh, so we, you know, played the wind, snuck up, crawled up to within uh, about 40 yards. And I had practiced with the dart gun before made the shot. And the first thing I did when the, the rhino essentially ran in our direction, the first thing I did was move. And so he picked up on that and he's charging right at us. And all that's there is like a little mesquite tree. The pH grabs me, pulls me the other way. And the rhino runs on the other side of the tree. And I mean, we're both, sh both shaken. And this thing was headed right at us. Uh, <laughs> it put a, it put a little, it put the fear of God in me for a second. I don't think I'd ever been really scared in a hunting situation until that moment in time. Um, and, but then, you know, to be able to put your hands on that animal and, yeah. and, and walk away from it, knowing that that, that ranch, um, has to have those dollars to fund 24 hour anti-poaching. Uh, I'll even put it this way. He asked me not to, uh, 
I had filmed some lions actually breeding just at this lion just was mounting this female and I've got it on film when we were driving around, uh, making our way into the property. And he was like, please don't put that on social media. We're one of very few places that have lions and rhinos. People will come here and try to kill our rhinos if they put two and two together. So, um, it's very, yeah, I, I walked sure. away from it thinking this is something that I was very concerned about, but it was a good experience. One that I, that I, I think, um, I you know, definitely recommend it, especially from the standpoint of if you're really intent on taking the big five and, and money is a concern, I think you can have that experience for a fraction of the cost of, uh, you know, actually harvesting an animal. Right. And you're, you know, in, in whichever way a person decides to do it, we are putting money into, into conservation. And I've had, yeah. I've had the discussion with a lot of people who, a lot of hunters who say I would never shoot a rhino. And I try to explain to them, you know, I understand that but you have to understand the, the situation. When you're taking a male out of a group where they've got excess males, and then you're giving that owner the money to be able to continue his operation, continue with his, uh, like you say, the, the anti-poaching patrols, having people out there. I mean, where I hunted my rhino, um, there's a team of two to four men that are in the field 24 yeah. seven. They literally live their lives tracking the rhinos so that they can see, and obviously looking for poachers tracks. Mm -hmm. And it is, uh, you can imagine the expense of that. So there's gotta be money. So everybody has to decide what's right for them in hunting. And I've never, I'm not a proponent of criticizing other people for their methods or the way they do things. I think we all need to work together, but consequently I don't want to have, um, criticism leveled towards me either when I can demonstrate the conservation value of what I've done. No, it may not be for everybody, right. um, but it's very important as to um, how we go forward and continuing to uh, promote these animals. But, but Cable, I felt just like you when I got, I probably was one of the in most uneasy hunting situations of my life when we got close to the rhino. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it, it was, um, I'm just like you. It's kind of hard to describe. You get in there within 30, 40 yards of a rhino, and it is a very uneasy feeling. Even knowing their eyesight is poor, if the wind changes and they yeah. come, and we took, we were very close to mine for a while because we wanted to have plenty of time to evaluate it and make sure it was one of the bulls that should be taken and not to, obviously on a rhino of all animals, you don't want to make a mistake. And so yeah. we were within uh, shooting range for some time, and I, I'm, I'm just getting more and more uneasy because you're, you're there with a big, powerful animal. And uh, it, that's part of hunting, though, the excitement, the ups and downs, the frustrations. Um, it, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty surreal putting my hands on that, that thing. And, and I think that was the moment that said, you know what, this is, this is okay. What you've done here is, is actually a good thing for conservation. Because like I said, I had to really be talked into that one. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, good experience. Glad I did it and uh, do recommend it uh, for anyone that, that wants to have a similar uh, experience. Um, and I'm uh, just looking at the clock here, uh, Philip, we're, we're about out of time. What's, uh, what's up next for you? When are you heading back over to the dark continent? I'm going next year in, in July, uh, taking a group of guys with me that will all, it'll all be their first safari. So I'm getting to, to kind of change gears and have fun uh, sharing my experiences. I've been to Africa 15 times and, and just love it and, and uh, love sharing that passion with other people. So I've got a group lined up. Uh, we're going to go do that uh, and enjoy the beautiful Eastern Cape of South Africa. And then in um, September, I'll be going to uh, Alaska on a moose hunt. 
Awesome. Awesome. Have you taken a, a moose before? I have not. I have not uh, actually hunted in Alaska. A friend of mine went with me to Africa last year with my hunting group on his first safari, and he's been twisting my arm for decades <laughs> because he goes to Alaska every year. And so I finally said, okay, we're going to do a drop camp moose hunt. So it's self-guided, but uh, we do get the camp set up for us so we don't have to carry so much gear. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that looked like a good option for us. So um, beautiful uh, place to go, incredible hunting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, looking forward to to helping coach my group of guys on their first safari. And the Eastern Cape, that's where I've spent my time in South Africa. It's beautiful there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very, very diverse terrain. You get, you can get a, an hour or two away from the coast and get into the mountains. Um, you can be closer to the coast and have a more like rainforesty type of uh, environment. And yeah, it's, I, I really have a, you think about Africa and, and, before ever going there, I'm thinking we're just going to be driving around in a land cruiser. It's going to be flat. We're going to be able to see animals for miles and miles and miles. And I was <laughs> thrilled that it was all spot and stock and, and in, the terrain is so varied. And that is far from the reality of uh, a safari on the Eastern Cape for sure. Sure. Absolutely. Beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're going to love moose meat. That's my favorite. Uh, <laughs> I think out of all the North American species I've taken and I shot one in Newfoundland last year. And my, I mean, my, my wife and kids think it is just absolutely phenomenal, not gamey at all. So, uh, you're in for a, a treat there, my friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Hey, Philip, I appreciate the time. It has been great visiting with you. Cable people are welcome to follow me on Facebook or, uh, just under my name or Instagram under real Philip glass. That's Philip with one L. You're welcome to see some of my hunting photos and things on Instagram. So feel awesome. free to reach out. Awesome. Well, I certainly appreciate the conversation, Philip. Thank you, Cable. Hope you have a good day. So there you have it. Uh, Philip glass, great stuff there. And by the way, if you haven't seen trophy, I do want to encourage you to check out that documentary. Um, pretty eye opening, especially considering the, uh, the focus on the rhino breeding industry and the illicit uh, rhino horn black market, uh, certainly worth a watch. Um, that segment was brought to you by Big and J's to die for. Put some out at the lease. Uh, both of my whitetail properties had bucks at both of them within, I don't know, 12 hours. Um, I, whatever's in that stuff, the smell just brings them in. Got tons of pictures that I mean, I'm just blown away by the amount of activity right there in front of the camera as these deer are just chowing down on the uh, to die for. You can find it. You can get it at Walmart. It's everywhere. Check it out. Big and Jay's to die for. You can find it and their entire lineup of supplements and attractants at BigandJay.com. Man, just looking at the clock. Got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Philip for his contribution to today's episode. Thanks to you guys and gals for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Well, there's cool and there's high And things that come just to stir the pot And words it ain't worth the time they take to say <laughs>